five or 10 years ago, you know, this application that we're sitting in here recording together in real time would have been kind of oddly crazy, right? Like we wouldn't have been able to do this um, as effectively at the time. So our expectations have changed a lot, but the way that we're engaging with each other is wildly different now than it was two years ago. You know, I expect to be able to interact via, you know, chat applications and video applications and, you know, all kinds of other stuff with my team, despite the fact that yesterday I was in the office in New York City. Today, I'm working from home in my office in central New Jersey. Some other day this week, I might be on the road in my car uh, or flying someplace different. Uh, You know, we're mobile. Our connectivity is totally dynamic. We are much more connected now than we were even two years ago. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, good day, good week, good month, good year, and I think that covers all of the bases. I think so too. (laughs) Uh, Well, welcome, dear listener. This is That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is everyday technology. Uh, We've got a cracking uh, episode lined up for you today, where we welcome Chris Beavers of NS1 on the show to discuss all things internet and more on that in a bit. Uh, But if you missed last week's announcement, then here it is again. We want to do that tech show live and we need to know basically if it's worth putting on. So if you live in London or you can travel in and around the month of August. To London. To London, of course. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) I'm sure there's a comma in there somewhere, but uh, you know. It's all in the expression, I guess. But uh, if you're interested in attending or even participating, then we need to hear from you. We need to hear from you. So uh, please register your interest. And I'll put a link in the description of this episode so you can just click right onto it. Or just if you're on the website, there'll be an unmistakably obnoxious yellow banner with a link on it. Just click that. And we have another announcement, right? We do. Yeah, we do. Uh, So this is episode 61, so that's over a year's worth of content that you can go and listen to, and we want to start changing things up a bit. So quite frankly, the weekly episodes are getting too much. Sam and I are knackered. We're tired. (laughs) We're not getting paid. Uh, Unless, of course, you want to drop us a shekel on buymeacoffee.com forward slash that tech show. That again is buymeacoffee.com forward slash that tech show. We've had a few coffees. That's quite nice. So we are really doing these episodes for free. And so we will be uh, releasing less frequently to just take the pressure off a bit so we can, uh, we can have a breather. And we can also focus on bringing you better quality content and giving the episodes that we're putting out the attention they deserve with adequate promotion. Fancy that, actually promoting that tech show. <laughs> and, and, uh, and also, we won't be killing ourselves by trying to get an episode out every week. Because honestly, it really takes a huge amount of effort on the part of me, on the part of Sam, more Sam than me, if I'm honest. Uh, and obviously, the, uh, our, um, our man that hides in the background, editing everything else together, Simon. And obviously the listener as well. Let's not let's, let's not forget that every week it uh, must be quite, pretty pretty tricky to for a listener to be like another episode coming out, another episode coming out. You know, we we want to give you the chance to digest and you know really think about what we've spoken about and apply that. I don't know. I think it. I think it might help. Yeah, we know these episodes are quite intense, right? Because we've got quite there's a lot of content. We talk about people's lives. We talk about people's careers. We talk about a lot of tech. You know, asking you to listen and tune in for over an hour of conversation each week is is a lot to ask. We're all busy these days. And, you know, for all those who are interested in being a guest, well, quite frankly, we need to know you're going to bring the goods. 
Okay. We've done as much as we can internally to bring the best quality show possible. But going forward, we're unfortunately going to only be accepting guests that have recording equipment. And by that, we mean decent microphones. So that you, dear listener, aren't straining to listen to uh, the guests' AirPods audio. Unless, of course, they have sufficient gravitas for us to stomach that. Either way, <laughs> I think it's only fair to bring a better quality show after all. So I think I'm excited about this um, decision going forward. I'm excited to have more of a life and uh, less tears. And <laughs> <laughs> and we can keep a friendship intact, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> potentially. I'll, I'll think about that one. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I, I think I'm, I'm excited to actually start, like I say, give it, well, like Chris said, actually, given, uh, given the episode a bit more breathing room and highlighting some of the really interesting, you know, 30 second chats that we have on, on on throughout the show for those that don't want to listen to it and just want a juicy insight. So with that out of the way, Chris Beavis of NS1. Mm, yes, Chris is on the show this week and we get into, of course, what NS1 is. And if you know, you know what NS1 is. You shouldn't know, as Chris gets to in this episode. But if you know, you know. Uh, we speak about the history of the internet and how NS1 came to be, the problems that the internet had that NS1 tries to solve, cat pictures, leadership, and how Chris developed his leadership skills, the future of NS1, and how to build a great experience. Because if you don't know what NS1 is, I can guarantee you've probably used it at some point during the day. So that's how big this is. That's what I mean. If you know, you know. If you know, you know. It's huge. So find out how the internet works and tune into this great chat with Chris. So let's get into it. My name is Chris Beavers. Uh, I'm the co-founder and CEO at NS1. We're a application and edge networking technology headquartered in New York, but pretty global. Um, been around for about nine years and you know, I, I'm an engineer. So you know, I'm excited to join you guys on the show and talk about tech and startups and, you know, really everything in between. So thanks for having me. Thanks for joining, Chris. So NS1, will people have heard of NS1? Uh, some people will have, you know, maybe some of the right people will have, maybe there are customers, but most people will have not heard about NS1. And the reason is you know, we're not Airbnb, right? We're not Slack or Pinterest or something like that. We are you know, a substantial tech company, a startup that's grown over many years, but we're what I what I call an infrastructure startup, right? And that means that we underpin a lot of what we all do on the internet all day, every day. Um, but if you hear about us, unless you're our customer, that's usually not a good thing, right? Uh, that usually <laughs> means we mess something up, right? And, uh, uh, you know, a joke I often make is, you know, if our company's having a bad day, I have to go on CNN and explain myself, right? And so, you know, generally, um, we're a little under the radar, um, except in the right circles, right? People who are building applications and networks that make the world work, um, they know NS1. So how many people are likely to have used NS1 services without knowing that they're using them? Uh, everyone. If you're on the internet, you almost certainly have interacted with NS1 services depending on what time it is for you, probably dozens to hundreds of times today. And, you know, the reason is that uh, a substantial chunk of the internet starts with NS1, right? And I usually will say something like, 
nobody knows you want to go to LinkedIn until you type linkedin.com to your browser and press enter. And at that moment, you're interacting with our services, right? And just to give you a sense of some of what we do, you know, we, we grew up providing what's known as authoritative domain services uh, to you know, major applications on the internet. And that means that we're the, the system of record for those domain names, like in that example, linkedin.com. And we're the system that ultimately you're interacting with to figure out, you know, what is the IP address of LinkedIn.com that I should actually go and connect to to consume that application or that service? And we we provide that service across a whole bunch of sectors or segments, right? And certainly, SaaS applications like a, a LinkedIn or Dropbox or something like that, consumer applications of so streaming media, or if you watch live sporting events or things like that very often we're providing those services consumer apps and also other infrastructure companies right and so you know many of the companies that underpin the internet um, are underpinned in some way by ns1 so you know we are lucky at this stage in our business and life cycle to be quite pervasive on the internet and again you know relatively unknown and that's a good thing you know generally that means we're doing okay <laughs> so how long how long have you been around as a company yeah we're this is our uh this is our ninth year of existence and you know as tends to happen with these things you know we, we've worked on the technology a little bit longer than that right um you know my my background prior to this business is what i usually call broader internet infrastructure and i you know i grew up in new york as a professional building everything from what i call space power transit right physical infrastructure to on demand bare metal servers right to early public cloud and uh, network services like content delivery and dns services and the like and i mean you know that that breadth of exposure in the time frame for me was the 2000s or so was a very interesting learning experience, right? Solving all those problems at a time when the internet was becoming, you know, really prevalent and taking off and everybody was beginning to make these applications or websites or whatever it is part of their daily lives and have expectations of them uh, in terms of performance and reliability and so on. And, you know, that's what led us to NS1, uh, you know, back way back, you know, in the 2011, 2012 timeframe, you know, this recognition that the internet was so important to our lives that everything on the internet starts with a domain and that there's a lot of leverage to being smarter about you know how we connect you or I uh, with the applications that we want to actually go interact with so that we have great experiences and you know that's been that's been our purpose ever since yeah I think that's really interesting that you sort of focusing in on the uh, late 2000s, I suppose, because you, you, you're you right. I mean, there was, a, there was a lot of internet out there before. I'm not sure if that's the right phrasing, but there we go. Um, <laughs> but it's, um, I suppose it's late 2000s that we've started to look at like early bits of streaming media, I suppose. Obviously, YouTube's what, 2006? You know, so that's the growth of people starting to look at content on, online and demand more from it, from the internet, I guess. Uh, you know, I'll I'll frame it up in a couple of different ways, right? W one is if you hearken back to that time frame, we had this term Web 2.0 emerging, right? And you know that sort of represents the interactivity of the web, you know, orientation toward applications on the web as opposed to I'd call it static content, say. And um, that's when you know this notion of 
the experience of the user really became important. You know, you're interacting. You're interacting with each other through applications or with applications and content as opposed to purely consuming, right? And so that that's sort of the framing uh, in which, you know, the, the genesis, at least, of our business or the realization that there was a need for, for technology like this came forth. And I'll give you a personal anecdote. You know, I, um, in my last company, lived in uh, Singapore for about four years. And when I first landed in Singapore, which is you know, sometime in the, you know, around early 2008 or so, you know, we were early in this web 2.0 transition. And, you know, my experience as a user of internet applications in Singapore, when I first got there was not great, right? Google was fast. Facebook was pretty fast. Most of the rest of the internet physically resided in Ashburn, Virginia, in the East Coast of the United States, right? On servers and big data centers. And, uh, what you can't beat is physics, right? You can't beat the speed of light. And so when you're in Singapore and you want to read a restaurant review on Yelp or something like that, right? And um, that content or the pictures of the menu or whatever live halfway around the world, you're paying a penalty, right? Like your experience interacting with that content is is not great. It's going to cost you about 300 milliseconds every single time uh, that you want to interact with something. And, you know, sometime in that time frame, 20... 2010 or so, you know, all of these businesses began to realize our audiences are global, right? We care about users in Singapore or in Europe or in Africa or South America or these markets that are a little bit distant from, uh, you know, the physical infrastructure on which our content and our, and our code and our data reside. And we need to solve that problem in order to, to meet the expectations of what I call an increasingly impatient audience. We today, um, we don't put up with connected applications that um, aren't giving us good experiences. What do we do? Like if you're shopping online and, you know, a uh, picture of a, a shirt takes too long to load, you move on. You're not going to buy it, right? Um, that behavior was emerging in that time frame. These expectations were being set. And that led to, you know, investment in these internet companies toward user experience and providing these great experiences. And that, that's what ultimately led us to start NS1. We saw this opportunity in the domain to be smarter about which infrastructure, say for Yelp in that example, or LinkedIn or others, um, is going to provide you, Chris, the best experience right now, knowing where you are and you know, what your internet is like um, at the moment and, you know, what options the application might have for you to go interact with it and consume its content. So that that's what led us to it. Do you mean, are you saying that this wouldn't have happened if you hadn't gone to work in Singapore? Uh, well, <laughs> well, almost certainly, right? And I, I love I love the meandering uh, effects of life events and how, you know, those ripple effects persist forevermore. And let me go back even further for you. You know, I occasionally I will go... Um, and speak to students, um, you know, either at my prior university or something like that, and talk about the path a little bit. And one thing that always, you know, I find interesting about my own path, and I see it in others, is the choices or the connections you make quite early in your life uh, reverberate, right? And I'll give you an example. You know, my my first startup, I'm a startup person. I've been doing startups for quite a long time. <laughs> my first startup was in um, 2000, actually, you know, the very first uh, dot-com boom. And um, 
doesn't really matter what it was. It was file sharing when you could get away with that kind of thing. Um, but uh, <laughs> just gloss over that bit. <laughs> yeah, let's just gloss over that. One, right? um, you know, I took a year off from university and decided to do a startup. And you know, I was lucky enough to work with some brilliant young people who ultimately went on when that startup did what what some startups did in that era and went out of business um, to do other things. Right? I went back to school and I did you know, degrees and different, you know, technology areas and so on. But some of the colleagues that I worked with continued doing different startups, including in internet infrastructure. And interestingly, a friend that I met doing that very first startup back in 2000 founded a company called Voxel. And uh, Voxel, despite the name, was not a computer graphics company. He was a, he was a computer graphics nerd starting an internet infrastructure company. And that is where, um, you know, I went to work after I finished university seven or eight years later because his company that he started had grown and evolved. And he was Singaporean, um, as it happens. And he really wanted to open a footprint in Singapore. And I said, I would like to do that. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, that personal connection persists, actually. Um, you know, we eventually sold that business. And this person, his name's Raj, um, a very good friend of mine now, uh, helped invest in NS1 at the start of this company and helped me get started with it. You know, I invested in the first round of funding for his new business. And some people on your podcast might know it. It's called Grafana. Grafana is a, oh, wow, yeah. uh, you know, open source observability company that is an absolute powerhouse. And, uh, you know, Raj has built an amazing company on his own. And, you know, we circle in each other's orbit to this day, you know, 20 something years later. And so those, those ripple effects, you know, really persist. And for me, a lesson from that is how important the relationships you build can be to, to your life um, and to the things that you want to do, you know, decades on. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think the power of networking is definitely something to bear in mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been working with the same people for the last decade as well, I think, really. That's right. Yeah. So what exactly was this gap then in the market that you'd spotted? You know, I mean, how did you, because there's a, there's a solution to the, you know, the, the gap that you'd spotted that it was, it was going to take you a long time to download that content from Singapore. How did you come around to solving the problem that solved the gap, if that makes sense? Well, yeah, you, yeah, that's right. You identified the problem there. Um, and uh, let me break it down a little bit, actually. First, We've touched on Voxel, right? The company that I was working with. And, you know, among many, many pieces of technology that we built in that business, you know, I was responsible for our global, what's known as a content delivery network, right? So we were, we were solving that really acute problem very precisely. Um, I usually use cat pictures as my example because I, uh, <laughs> the internet in 2008 was mostly about cat pictures, right? And our job was when someone wanted to look at a cat picture online, you know, make sure they got it from the right infrastructure in our content delivery network so that they'd have a great user experience. So we had to solve this problem, right? And um, and the way we did it is placing infrastructure strategically all over the world and purchasing connectivity strategically all over the world so that we knew that we were within some number of milliseconds of basically any human that might want to get a cat picture from our network, right? And then it's a very important service that you're providing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> cat pictures underpin the internet. Believe it's me. absolutely it's absolutely <laughs> true. They're at the, they're at the core of the internet, pulling at that ball of twine. Still today, right? Like you know, and <laughs> when I need need to relax at the end of the day, I scroll through cat pictures, right? And 
And so the way we tackled that problem, and let me restate the problem now with some, some a little more technical depth. We had servers and connectivity all over the world. You could get cat pictures from any of it. You, Chris, wanted to get a cat picture. Which of our infrastructure was best for you to interact with to get it with the best experience right now? Right, and today we we have a name for that problem. We call it the traffic steering problem. Um, at the time, we didn't have that name, but we we had to figure out how are we going to solve that traffic steering problem, you know, for our content delivery network. And you know, we tried a lot of different things, and it almost doesn't matter all the things that we tried because what we landed on was this recognition that this pervasive you know, technology underpins everything on the internet. And that is the domain name system, right? The DNS is what we call it. And it comes back to what I said earlier, right? No one knows you want to go to LinkedIn to type LinkedIn.com to your browser and you press enter. And almost every website or application or content or anything on the internet that you interact with has those characteristics. It starts with the domain name lookup. And what that tells me is, there's an awful lot of leverage in that domain, right? Now, let's just talk a little about what the DNS really is, right? We we often think of it as like the phone book of the internet. Uh, it, like here, here in the States, we'd call it the white pages. You flip through the old phone book, you find the name of the person that you want to interact with, and next to that is the phone number to call. And DNS is that for the internet, right? You type in the domain name, and DNS's job is give you back the IP address that your computer can speak, that the routing protocols of the internet know how to get you to, to go connect with, to interact with that application. In the 2000s, the DNS was mostly what we'd call static, right? Uh, It really was like a phone book, right? You'd type in linkedin.com and there'd be an IP address uh, somewhere out there that you wanted to get back. And I think the basic recognition we had in Voxel solving the traffic steering problem for people to get cat pictures from our CDN was... Why is it static? Why can't we be smart and um, you know recognize, oh, Chris is asking us from this particular ISP in London about this cat picture. And we happen to have an IP address of a server in London that has good connectivity to that ISP. Maybe we should give him the IP address of that server, right? And maybe me, Chris, um, over in Singapore, uh, connected via Singtel, have some different characteristics. And by the way, we have a server in Sing- Singapore that's connected to Singtel. And so perhaps we should send me that different IP address when I type in the same domain. And that's it. That was the basic realization was like, we can be a little bit smarter and answer differently depending on who is asking and what we know about them You know, in this protocol, in this domain name system that everything on the internet speaks. So you know, that was a really long-winded way of saying we solved this problem in that particular context in our last business. And now let's talk a little bit more about what was happening in 2010, 11, and 12. The internet was becoming applications, right? And you, you're you starting to interact with people on social media and uh, interact with you know dynamic content through applications. And so no longer was it just cat pictures, right? You wanted to have these great experiences with Cat videos, I suppose. Yeah, cat videos, right? Yeah. Code data that was, <laughs> you know, much more voluminous, that was dynamic, right? And, um, and all of these services were recognizing, oh, I've got Chris in London and other Chris in, in Singapore, and they matter to me. So, so I need to put my code and my data, not just my, not just my cat pictures anymore, close to those people. And now I have the traffic steering problem, right? And so this traffic steering problem started to emerge and generalize and become really important to kind of everything that was happening on the internet. 
So that, that was sort of the, the next condition that led us to this. And then the third and final question, you know, as a startup person, I always think about the market and the competitive landscape, right? So how else were these, you know, emerging applications and companies on the internet going to solve this problem, right? Like what other technology was available to them? And domains and the DNS have been around a long time. So how were they connecting users via their domains with the right IP addresses in 2010? And was the approach that they were using going to generalize to you know, be intelligent and solve this traffic steering problem? When we looked at the competitive landscape, there were companies in what we called the managed DNS space, right? Um, and managed DNS space, you know, really all that means is there are companies who you can go to and uh, pay, you know, to give them the IP addresses of your domains, give them, you know, other details about your domains so that, uh, you know, reliably and fast, you can type those domains into your browser and they get back the IP address. And that's a service provided by these managed DNS companies. So that was the space we really zeroed in on. And when we looked at it, what we found were networking companies. And what I mean by that, I don't mean that too pejoratively, but there were companies who really were focused on delivering the DNS service as it always has been reliably and fast over their own networks. But they weren't really software companies, right? They weren't really thinking about how do we how do we inject some smarts here? How do we do something a little bit different with this opportunity of the domain name lookup? And you know, just back through all that really quickly, you know, we had been solving these problems for our own purposes, cat pictures, right? We recognized that suddenly everybody was all having these problems for their applications, their SaaS companies, whatever it was. And then finally, we recognized that the the way that they were trying to solve these problems today was not very smart, um, and there was an opportunity to do something different and better and differentiated, right? Um, and that's what that's what led to NS1 ultimately. Like we decided to start a company, attack this managed DNS space by being different um, in our software and being smart about how we're responding and directing users to solve the traffic steering problem, and that's worked. So, so why do you think that the competitors at the time weren't actually you know, why were they treating it as a utility, I suppose? Why were they not trying to push it forward and evolve it? You know, I, I, think, I think this is a very straightforward um, answer, actually, Chris, and it's as simple as it had always been that way, right? These are companies who... who but we're only talking 20 years, right? Well, let's see. So, so in 2012 or so, these companies had existed mostly, I'm generalizing, but mostly about 10 to 15 years, right? And they were what I call like the first cohort in this, this managed DNS space, right? And they stepped in when the needs were very different, right? Web 1.0, right? Um, and there is one server that can serve this piece of content to the user in Virginia, and so, you know, they focused in building their businesses on, you know, reliably delivering the domain um, and delivering, you know, the IP address to you quickly, um, wherever you are in the world, but not on intelligence because there was no need for intelligence at the time. And so I think, you know, what happened is the the needs of their customers evolved over time. And as happens with companies when they're at scale and making money and providing service and so on, you know, they were a little slow to to recognize this change. And in part, it was a DNA thing, right? They had networking DNA. Their DNA was, we are here to deliver this established service and protocol reliably and fast, not we're here to change the way it works, right? Or we're here to change the purpose of this thing. And so we were lucky to have some sort of fresh eyes, I think, um, when, you know, the existing players 
hadn't necessarily recognized that the needs in their market had changed. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So, I mean, you've got, well, it's, it's, it's probably end of 2012, you've got this idea, uh, you're going to start the company. How do you actually get the company started? What's the, what's the tactic for trying to get this thing off the ground? You know, I don't think there's any other way to start a company other than just starting it, right? And um, <laughs> there's no, there's no like, ah, the light bulb has gone off and I know exactly what I'm going to do and how I'm going to fundraise and who's going to buy it and all this stuff. You really just get started. And so the real story for NS1 is, you know, I had some colleagues I had worked with for many years who had experience in these areas and we knew we wanted to start something, right? And, it, you know, while I can give you the one, two, three story of NS1 really clearly today, it wasn't that clear at the time, right? Um, we explored all kinds of different ideas and things that we had learned and opportunities we saw. We landed on this one as that seems interesting and potentially relevant, and maybe there's a real opportunity here. So let's go figure it out, right? And there's a true story about NS1, which is that, uh, um, you know, I sat down in a Starbucks with one of my co-founders, my CTO, John and drew on a Starbucks napkin, you know, a path for our business. And somewhere in some folder, I have this napkin still. And then we started to go down the path. It's as simple as that. We sort of took the leap. We said, you know, let's go build something, right? And what we built first was just a little bit of code, right? And just for ourselves. Like, let's see if we can, let's see if we can solve this problem for our own side project domains and deliver them, deliver them via some new technology. And then let's ask our friends to do it and learn from that a little bit too. And, you know, at some point you say, okay, um, this is working non-commercially for ourselves, for our friends. We've built some technology and so on. What's the business opportunity? And we were wrong about it, by the way. You know, we thought, you know, the business that we were going to build was going to be for you know, developers and small startups and small companies who were building new things from scratch. And so, you know, somewhere archived, I have a copy of an old website that we had, the first one, or we, we had, I'm sure you've seen, you know, these um, pricing plans for software as a service companies, you know, small, medium and large or something like that. And our small was free and our medium was about $5 a month or something. And our large was 20 bucks a month or something like that. We thought uh, an individual developer is going to sign up and they're going to want more of this traffic steering and they're going to pay us $20 a month. And it turns out that the technology we built was really for the biggest and most important applications in the world. And you know, our our first customer um, paid us six thousand dollars a month. Wow! And then we deleted the website. We said, "Well, we were wrong about that, right? Let's do more of those." <laughs> um, and you know, there's a there are different dynamics, obviously, right? Um, companies that pay you six thousand dollars a month are fewer and farther between, right? And so you're uh, sales and marketing and so on is very different than it would be for individual developers who are going to pay you $20 a month. So we had to really rethink how are we going to build a company around this thing? Who is it for? What do they need? And, you know, we're used to seeing um, in the news and in the media and on social media and so on, we're used to seeing these startup success stories, right? Somebody raised $100 million on a $2 billion valuation. Oh my goodness. You know, what we don't always hear about and see is the reality behind how that happened. And invariably, when you inspect, the reality is years of slog and hard work and effort to arrive at, you know, those cool fundraising stories. For us, um, you know, we worked on our business and those early 
learnings and pivots and changes and so on for uh, probably about three years um, before uh, we were ready to raise institutional money and really begin to scale up a business. So, you know, those those early phases where you're being really scrappy, you're just you're surviving on ramen noodles, right? And uh, you know, trying to figure out what kind of a business are you going to build. Those for me are some of the most fun phases, fun creative phases of building a business. Because after that, you have customers. Um, and I love our customers at NS1, but customers require require you to service them. They, requ- they have expectations. They have you know, re- requirements um, to be met. And uh, so now you've got to look after your cats. That you, have, you have to look after them, right? And <laughs> you have revenue and employees and everything else, right? So those early stages are when you're really the most free and have the most flexibility to be creative. But of course, I don't regret the business that we've become either. Um, it, you know, you get started very scrappily, and then you grow from there. So, g- going from that um, idea or that business plan that you've drawn out on a Starbucks napkin to three years when you're raising your first round of money, like how quickly did you realize that there was actually some legs in this business, and it wasn't just something that you and your your friends was, were going to consume? You know, because you talked about that six that six k customer. How long was it before you got that first 6K a month customer? Well, you know, um, I'm going to hearken back to something we've talked about already, which is, you know, the personal network, right? And um, here's another another data point to that end, right? Um, I had worked for seven, eight years in the previous business that we talked about building content delivery networks and all this other stuff. And, you know, when we exited that business, um, and just to not be mysterious about it, we sold the business to a larger player, right? Um, there was a diaspora, right? Myself and my co-founders went on to found NS1. Um, but others that we worked with for many years went on to take on other roles and other kinds of companies. And, uh, you, you know, in starting NS1, those were all the people we called and said, do you have some domains that you could put on this thing? Because we're trying to learn how to solve this problem. And we you know, like to see if it's valuable for you and so on. And some of them worked at other companies that had these problems, right? And so, you know, I touched a few moments ago on that first customer that we found, 6000 bucks a month, and that's how we found them, right? It was somebody that we had worked with in the past in our network that we had engaged with. And, you know, the way this actually happened was not as proactive as I make it sound. In fact, you know, we asked this person to put some personal domains on our platform and help us test the technology and so on. And you know, they watched it for a little while. And then, then they called me one day and said, I have this problem in my company and I needed to solve it by next month. Are you ready? <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, just to, to, to go a little further into their use case, um, now this is 2013 or so. In 2013, a really big segment on the internet was ads, right? This is when everyone is trying to figure out how to make money from their web applications. And so, ad services, you know, and online advertising was a really emerging startup segment and companies were growing really fast. And um, you can imagine there was a lot of traffic for these ads, right? And, you know, we talked about cat pictures a few minutes ago, an ad's not much different from a cat picture, right? If you load news website, for example, um, you know, the way they make money is by showing you ads that are relevant and showing them to you fast because it turns out the faster they get the ad in front of you, the higher conversion rate they have for you clicking on the ad, the more they get paid, right? So the problem that this 
this person from our network was solving was delivering ads reliably and fast to global audiences, right? So that maybe sounds a little familiar. Um, it's no different than the cat picture problem. <laughs> and they needed traffic steering technology to do that effectively. They had tried to build it themselves, um, you know, and had struggled with that, knew we were building a business here, had experienced the technology personally. And they had an acute need. They said, we need it in September. And this is August, roughly. And we were not ready, right? Um, <laughs> not by any way, shape, or form were we prepared for the volume of traffic of a big ad provider, um, uh, you know, for somebody to be paying us $6,000 a month and for us to be critical to their business. But in a startup, you never say you're not ready. Um, you say, of course, we'll be ready in September. And then you get ready um, by <laughs> September. And so that's exactly what we did. And uh, we still, the moment they went live on our platform, were not what I would consider ready um, in retrospect. Um, but we made it work, right? And we had to be very scrappy and attentive and focused. And um, and then there was another one, right? That the first, the first customer told about NS1. And then there was another one. And and then there was one that wasn't in advertising. And it, you know that referral network and those initial proof points of those first few customers, you know, really mattered for us. And you know it all comes back to that network um, and to some luck. It sounds like you didn't really have to fight to get the business. It was a service that people just wanted. And that's when you really know you've caught, uh, you know, the startup-y term that I use is lightning in a bottle. You've caught lightning in a bottle when people are coming to you and saying, I have this problem. I can't find a solution elsewhere. I hear you're working on it. Help me, please. Right. And, you know, we use the term product market fit sometimes in startups. Right. That's when at least, you know, you have found problem market fit. Right. Like people have a problem who are in the market. You're trying to solve that problem. And, you know, they're demanding your solution. Product market fit is when you've solved the problem and proven that it works and they're getting value out of it. And, and that's, that's much harder than problem market fit. But, you know, that's exactly what we found. Have you bought any domain names recently, Sam? I'm a developer. That's, that's one of the um, trademarks of a good developer, isn't what, it? What, domain hoarding? Just in case. Is it hoarding or is it squatting? When does it, when does it move over? If you haven't built your project for it in the last six years it becomes squatting that's fair i think yeah it's hard to get a good domain name it's like choosing a feature branch name oh that's easy no it's not like in comparison to like trying to start a business pick a domain name all of that sort of stuff it's very complex <laughs> so where do you go then where do you where do you buy your domains the best place i've gone is uh namecheap that's what i use there you go probably the cheapest and the most easiest way to filter out different types so you can filter out by like obviously geography but also entertainment um sports all these kind of things very easy to find at least the category of domain name you like i would say that it not just has the widest range of domains that are on offer at good prices but actually when you're administering the domain name and you're trying to set up all your MX links and your A links and all that sort of stuff. Uh, A records, there we go. C names, all those sort of things. It has probably the best descriptions for how to make the changes. And it's the easiest to edit, in my opinion. Yeah, I genuinely go to Namecheap for all my domain names. Except that tech show, we'll be honest. Well, actually, we should move it across, I suppose. Because the thing is, it doesn't use cPanel, which seems so 
heavily embedded in about 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah. And um, the hosting as well. They do hosting. They do a lot of things, Namecheap. It's not just domain names. Yeah, I have, I have used the hosting, but only very briefly. For me, you know, and, and most developers, I guess, it is just the ease of finding a domain, setting it up. If you're a business owner as well, you're trying to figure out what the right name is for your company, and then you're trying to search for it online. You know, I think Namecheap's a pretty good way to go and find very quickly whether you can have a domain, a business name, etc., that all works. When you find one, you can buy it and you can set it up quickly. That's why I use Namecheap personally. Yeah. One-click setup on WordPress websites, hosting. They do the email as well, so they can do all of that. Honestly, it's a one-stop shop for all that, that kind of You sound of like stuff. you're selling it now, Sam. So, I'm uh... not. I'm not I, genu- <laughs> I, I, do, I genuinely use Namecheap, and I, I find it the cheapest and the easiest to use, so I don't go anywhere else. So if you have got a business idea, then now's the time to take action. The first piece of action you can do is buy your domain name. Well, the first piece of action is to take a, take a look in our description for this episode or head over to thattech.show and click the affiliate link so that when you start using Namecheap, we get a little bit of a kickback. There we go. You know, obviously, you've got this huge product backlog that you're trying to fulfill. You've got this huge customer demands that you're trying to f- fulfill. Where Where is the challenge from scaling in terms of, is it, you know, people versus the hardware? I mean, are you having to go and buy up infrastructure to deliver the service you're providing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do. We do operate a large global network and, you know, physical infrastructure um, just because of the characteristics of our particular product, right? We have... Footprints all over the world, they're physical footprints and, you know, fairly complicated sort of network infrastructure around them and connectivity and so on, because we need to be able to interact with you in London on your ISP, you know, in 15 milliseconds or less from anywhere in the world. And so early in our business, that was a constraint. But I would say um, at the end of the day, businesses fundamentally are constraint management problems your biggest constraint to growing the business, scaling as a company at any given time is something different, right? People are always at the heart of it, right? Um, Are you investing appropriately? Do you have the right people um, for the constraints that you're relaxing now or solving for now? And, you know, early in a business, early in a startup, I should say, you know, the kind of people you need are very different from the kind of people um, in a much larger business that must be predictable and scaled and, you know, operate like a machine. So a big constraint in our life cycle has been transitioning through those different phases of a business and the kind of a team that you need to have. Mm, that's interesting. So is, is that sort of a planned transition through the team or is that just something that happens naturally? <laughs> you know it's coming, but there's no such thing as planning how your team is really going to evolve over time and you know being able to to be deliberate about it because people are people, right? Um people are dynamic themselves, right? And so and have goals and career paths and things that they're seeking to achieve and things that are interesting to them and not and so on. And so you know notionally that when you are a 200 person business, you know, the kinds of people you need are going to be different than when you're a 15-person business. Notionally, you know that, but you know, it's, it's always a dynamic exercise. From the moment that you have 
multi, multi, a multi-body problem in your organization. Like the moment you're not the only person engaged in the business, um, you begin to have this dynamic of what is the right thing for the people in the organization right now with respect to the needs of the organization, the goals of the individuals, um, you know, our business goals. And it's always a living in motion question of, you know, how are we going to continue to adapt the team in service of all of those different, you know, dimensions. How, how big are you now? We're a couple hundred people today. So that's about what it is, right? And we've, you know, very gradually gone from three people. I have two co-founders and myself to five to 10, 15, 20. And then we've had fits and starts and, you know, explosions in growth and slight contractions and so on. And that's pretty normal in a startup over time, right? As your conditions change. Were, were any of those numbers sort of hard to break out of at any point? Did you get to like, because you, you often hear with startups that you get like, you get to 10 and it's really difficult to get over 10 and then you get to 30 and it's really difficult to get over 30 and then the same happens with 100. So yes, is the short take. And um, I'll call out a particular phase that I think is really an interesting time frame for startups. And, you know, it's when you go from, you know, the 20, 30, 40, person company to something beyond that, that the dynamic fundamentally shifts, right? And, you know, the dynamic when you have 20 people is you can all be in a room together. You really can. Um, and, you know, there's this notion of knowledge transfer through osmosis. You know, there's not much process in the organization because you're so tightly coupled and connected with everybody just organically. And, you know, as you get toward like that 50 number, that can't happen anymore. You, you, there's simply too much happening in the business and too many people in motion and engaging with each other to, to keep track of everything that's going on. And that's when you start to introduce processes and structure and so on. And it begins to feel like a different kind of company, right? It's no longer a, an entirely scrappy early stage startup where every day you're figuring out what's next and, you know, very dynamically adapting, um, you're starting to grow up. And that's, that's when it really changes. And I'll tell you the other big one for me as a founder, somewhere around 120 or 130 people in your organization is when, uh, I suppose it, I suppose it depends on who you are as an individual and how your mind works. But at least for me, that's where I, so I could no longer remember everybody's name. <laughs> and uh, that's a really interesting inflection point in a business too, where you no longer feel like it's this totally personal dynamic with everybody anymore, but it's an organization, it's a structure, um, people have roles, but you know, you're, not, you're not always interacting with people purely as humans. That's really interesting. I mean, also after nine years or so, there's not many organizations i think that still have the sort of founder acting as the ceo as well that tends to be rare in some cases yeah and that happens in a few different ways right so one is sometimes the business just goes away right and actually most of the time that's what happens by nine years you know very few businesses survive that long either they have a successful exit of some kind or they more often than not don't don't work um and then, you know, if they do continue to survive for that long, more often than not, you're right in service of changing the business somehow or growing up or whatever it is, um, you're hiring an outside CEO um, to change something. Um, 
or, and I feel this one all the time, CEOs just get tired, right? It is a hard, grueling job. And I think, I think the obvious analogy is sort of a, you know, you're running a marathon at a, at the pace of a sprint. Um, and I've, I've been doing that now for over nine years because we started before we incorporated the company, right? And, and people get, get tired. That's a natural thing to happen. My follow-up to that then, I guess, is, uh, you know, you've been a serial startup person and obviously you've worked with a lot of enterprise level organizations, but I'm guessing you probably didn't have much in the sense of like enterprise level leadership experience. So is that something that as NS1 has grown up, you have had to try and acquire? Is it something you've been under pressure with, with the board that you've presumably got around NS1 now? Yes. I mean, absolutely. Right. And I think the implication of the fact that I am still here after nine years is um, you can sort of read into that, that I've had to invest a lot personally in changing, right. As a, as a, an executive, I suppose you'd say, or a founder or person, right. Um, because the business needs different things from its CEO at different times, right. And one way to do that is go hire somebody, but another is for you to learn and grow. Right. And I would say, um, you know, that's predominantly my experience at NS1 is one of constant, you know, learning and growth and adaptation. And I'm, I'm lucky you mentioned our board, right. I'm, I'm very lucky to work with a board, um, a lot of investors, but also board members who are not investors that we've brought in, which is invested, I suppose you'd say, in my growth and development and, you know, has really helped me to that end. But it's also a deliberate exercise, right? Um, You know, I spend a lot of time, uh, almost every week, very explicitly focused on what do I need to do differently um, to be what this company needs me to be, you know, now or into the future. Uh, you know, we invest in coaches, invest in mentors. Um, you know, we bring board members in specifically to help um, with that purpose. And part of why, and I, I'm very biased uh, in this, but part of why I believe that that is valuable, um, at least for our company, is founders have something that hired CEOs don't, um, which is, you know, the vision for why they started the company, the uh, usually, I would say the enthusiasm and energy um, for pursuing that vision, and you know, if I may say so, some gravitational pull because of that energy and that vision. And you know, I think our calculus, at least so far, and it may not continue this way forever, is it's worth the cost uh, and the effort of growth and development as a leader, executive, or CEO, or whatever you want to call it to retain that benefit of, you know, kind of the founding vision and the energy around it. And I think you see that in, you know, much more, much more out in the open um, companies that we all know where the founder remains in place, right? You see it in, even in places where that's changed ultimately, but, you know, Apple with Steve Jobs um, was a very different place than Apple without Steve Jobs, right? Um, uh, you know, that founder passion, I think, matters a lot. Or dare I raise the specter of Elon Musk, right? Um, <laughs> you know, he uh, is a passionate and energetic founder and leader. And, you know, without him, you know, his businesses would probably not be the same, right? So, uh, you know, that's 
that's why I believe it's worth that investment and energy and you know that sort of growth. In this uh, in this transition of becoming this leader, what was the the most difficult thing you had to kind of reconcile with or, or learn on your journey? You know, I have a very easy answer to that, and you even hear me sigh. Um, <laughs> you know, and thinking about it, and you know, preparing to give you my answer. And I'm going to harken back maybe four or five years ago. Um, you know, I was working with a coach on, you know, developing and learning and becoming a better leader. What this particular coach did that was very helpful to me um, is he he went and he spoke with a bunch of people around me and around our business, right? Uh, employees in the company or other executives in the organization, you know, that I work closely with or with our board, or even with close friends or my wife, right? Um, and he built a, a picture. Um and he came back to me um, with an assessment, and his assessment focused on one thing, which he called uh, my greatest strength and my greatest weakness. And it's really stuck with me. And it is uh, loyalty. Um, and uh, it, you know, one of the hardest lessons for me in the business has been getting comfortable with the idea that the, we talked about this already in some ways that the needs of the business change over time with respect to the people who are in the business and the needs of people change over time too. And sometimes you're doing a disservice to people that you really care about by trying your darndest to retain them in the business and help them, you know, remain uh, in their roles in the business and not, you know, making harder decisions. Um, And that's been a really tough lesson for me to learn because I am someone who's very naturally you know, loyal to the people around me who wants to, you know, make the people around me feel good, right? Feel valued, feel like they're having an impact and so on. And sometimes the simple reality is um, the best thing for the people you care about and the best thing for the business is to part ways, right? And that that's a really tough lesson for me and remains one of the hardest parts of my job for me. Um, there are CEOs for whom that's an easy thing to do. And sometimes I envy them. Mostly I don't, um, because I also see that, and this is you know to what to what I mentioned. The coach found it's a it's a great strength too, right? People follow leaders who are loyal to them. But it's interesting to me, and has been a big lesson as well that something that is a big strength and that can lead to positive outcomes in a business can also lead to negative outcomes, or you know when when over rotated to, or can be a weakness as well. Mm. Yeah, Chris, do you want to bring it back to the DNS stuff then? Yeah, so I'm I'm curious about, uh, obviously, you know, you've got to this, this huge scale. You've gone through all of these leadership challenges. You've got this huge backlog that we talked about. We touched on that earlier. So, you know, what is the future for NS1 and for maybe just DNS and networking on the internet in general? Because we talked about, you know, NS1 starting at the verge of 2.0, there's been a lot of talk about 3.0 recently. Does that mean the internet's going to be changing again? Maybe. And and perhaps perhaps what happened to my competitors could happen to me. Um, but what I will tell you is I am not personally too rotated to what we now refer to as Web3 or crypto, I suppose, would be another label. Yeah, it's not really my world. And we, because the internet runs on DNS and crypto happens on the internet, we certainly interact with 
what's happening in that in that corner of the world or the internet, but it isn't what consumes me. And instead, I'll tell you what you know what's changed for us over ten years or so is you know more of what led us to start this business is happening in some new and interesting ways, right? And let's just let's just use the last couple of years as a good example for us to draw on, right? What happened over the last couple of years? Well, the global pandemic and what happened for the way we all connect and interact and work together? Well, it got more complicated, right? Um, here we all are on, you know, different sides of the ocean, you know, recording together um, uh, in roughly real time, mostly <laughs> with a few hiccups here and there, right? And and what are our expectations? Our expectations are those hiccups are kind of annoying, right? They shouldn't be happening. And five or 10 years ago, you know, this application that we're sitting in here recording together in real time would have been kind of oddly crazy, right? Like we wouldn't have been able to do this um, as effectively at the time, right? And um, so our expectations have changed a lot, but the way that we're engaging with each other is wildly different now than it was two years ago, right? Um, you know, I expect to be able to interact via, you know, chat applications and video applications and, you know, all kinds of other stuff with my team, despite the fact that yesterday I was in the office in New York City. Today, I'm working from home in my office in central New Jersey. Some other day this week, I might be on the road in my car um, uh, or flying someplace different. Uh, You know, we're mobile. Our connectivity is totally dynamic. We are much more connected now than we were even two years ago, right? Everything we do is online and via these connected applications. Businesses are moving, you know, quote unquote, to the cloud, right? They're going through these transformations. So our expectations are super high of connected applications. Our tolerance for failure is super low. And the complexity with which we're interacting with these applications and with which uh, these applications are being built has exploded. And all of it is happening over the network. So that's what's changed, right? Um, You know, the importance of what we are doing has multiplied, the complexity uh, in which we're operating has multiplied, and the expectations on technology in these areas has multiplied. And our business has changed quite a bit from, you know, steering traffic for cat pictures um, and, you know, emerging distributed applications. Every application on the internet today is distributed, is dynamic, is complex in its footprint and needs technology like NS1. So that's been great for business, but I think our vision is quite a bit bigger at NS1. And, you know, I often talk about our purpose as connecting the world's applications and audiences, right? And all of us are part of what I call the audience, right? We all interact with these applications all day, every day. And to connect the world's applications and audiences, you can't just sit at one end of that equation, right? We've grown up as a business by providing these domain services and traffic steering technologies and so on to the applications we all use every day. But a lot of our investment these days and our growing backlog, right, um, is in service of changing the way the networks we all connect through work as well, right? And a term that I can't believe we haven't managed to get to yet, but now I'm finally going to evoke for you guys <laughs> um, that you know I think is important to what we're doing on the network side of our business is edge, right? Um, and I'll talk about the edge computing and edge everything. What edge means to me, it harkens back to some of these trends we just talked about. It means what's happening you know, all the way out 
where the devices are, where the data is, where the humans are. Um, you know, if you go in a coffee shop today, like a, uh, I won't use names, but say you walk into a, a green and brown coffee shop from a global organization <laughs> that we all know and love, um, and you think about how you buy coffee from them today versus how you bought coffee from them five years ago, that's changed, right? Um, you probably, you know, buy it in the app so that it's there waiting for you when you get to the store. So there's connected applications in the mix. What's changed as well is when you walk into that store, there are 20 or 30 or 40 connected systems that make up the experience that you're going to have, right? There's certainly the point of sale, but there's sensors, there's, you know, IoT, there are retail analytics systems, there's local inventory systems, and all these things, they have to talk to each other to give you the experience of, you know, interacting with that organization the way you've gotten used to. And, you know, the way those those kinds of organizations used to work is, you know, they might have a point of sale and it might reconcile with some big, huge data center in Seattle a few times a day. The way they work today is all those connected systems and devices and so on, they need to continue to work, even if they have poor connectivity back to the mothership. And that's what edge means to me, right? In that store is the edge. The edge needs to be connected. Um, and that connection needs to continue to work, even in the face of, you know, kind of, local network failures or connectivity failures up to the internet in order to continue to provide you the experience that you've come to expect from that organization. And that's a nice example, but you know, we see these same trends in how things get manufactured today in industrial applications and the way we get energy in any sort of retail environment or hospitality environment in healthcare and on and on and on. You know, the connectedness and the explosion of connected systems and devices and so on is just enormous. So a lot of our investment today is in software and technologies to provide that kind of connectedness that go in that retail environment or coffee shop or something like that so that all those systems can continue to interoperate and work. And then the big picture for us and where I get genuinely excited is, well, what is the purpose of you know, the network in that coffee shop. You're going to go in there and you're going to log into the Wi-Fi. And what are you going to do? You're going to look at cat pictures, right? Are you going to watch <laughs> movies? Are you going to interact with restaurant reviews or whatever? It's all the stuff that we do all day, every day and have for a long time. And what's exciting for me about, you know, what we're working on and where we see the world heading in general is interconnectedness of all of this stuff, right? When we are providing you know, software and intelligence that's helping you get connected to the Wi-Fi or interact, you know, with the world in that coffee shop or for those systems to interact with stuff up in the cloud and so on. And when we're providing the steering and the connectivity and the security and so on for the applications that we all use every day, well, then you can kind of converge all of that stuff. Can we make sure that you're going to have a great experience in that coffee shop? Um, you know, when you're looking at cat pictures, because we provide your connectivity in the coffee shop and we provide the cat pictures and we can move that intelligence and smarts and security and so on to you at the edge, right? So that's what we see really happening today. And a lot of the investment, not just at NS1, but from all the big infrastructure companies on the internet is about that. So with obviously, you know, the desire to get that edge computing more tightly coupled and obviously fault tolerant, I suppose, if you're having those network outages, 
how how are you actually getting involved in that? Are you providing software or services to actually sit on IoT devices? Is that is that where you're getting you're like moving away from the sort of centralized piece and trying to put things into the edge or Yes, is the short take. And you know, in I'll I'll break it down to two buckets. You know, the first is networks have always you know had systems and services that make them work. When you when you connect to your local Wi-Fi router, you're connecting to a network, right? Um, your your network in your house, and the Wi-Fi router is providing presumably a lot of those services, like DNS services that enable you to, you know, go out and look up the IP address of LinkedIn.com, right? Um, or DHCP services, the systems or the software that's giving you an IP address on the network. And there are other services like that that make your network work, right? So one of the things that we're doing is providing those kinds of services now farther out at the edge inside the coffee shop, right? So that the IP camera and the retail analytics system and the point of sale can all talk to each other over the network and remain connected, even if that network itself gets disconnected from the internet. So that's one place that we go. And go ahead, Chris. But how are you actually providing those? Are you providing them like on the router itself or, you know, as part of... And that's the second piece of my answer, which is it's such a great (laughs) question. And the answer is... Yes, to all of the above. And you know, let me let me give you a belief, right? We believe that probably most of the organizations we work with, like the coffee shop, they have a lot of infrastructure in place for their networks already. They've got a router. They've got IoT devices out there in the wild. These are the things that need to interact over the network and make up the network, right? Um, our technology should be able to live alongside or on top of those things and make them smarter, unlock what we think of as control, um, you know, traffic steering, optimization, security, reliability, or capabilities we should be able to add on top of the existing footprint. That's not the only approach to bring smarts to the edge or improve networks at the edge. Other approaches are try and move it all to the cloud, right? And so there are companies out there who have big, huge edge networks of their own, and they say, hey, move all your connectivity to our network, as opposed to making your network smarter. Our approaches make your network smarter. Others have you know, cloud approaches. And then you asked a really insightful question, possibly without realizing it just a moment ago. <laughs> All the way at the edge is a device, right? Your phone or an IoT sensor or something like that. And that's where real value gets created, right? Like your interaction is with the screen on your phone or your laptop, right? And, the, and data is being generated by an IoT sensor in the wild. So how do we... How do we move the connectivity and the smarts and the network all the way out to that device? And that we are doing that, right? Like we are working with folks you would never think of, people who produce chips, for example, to figure out how to move the network, the smarts, the data and intelligence we have about the applications that those devices with those chips ultimately need to go interact with all the way out and embedding it even in the chip so that you know, the network and the way we connect and the smarts of how we connect is pervasive all the way to the computing system that we're using at the bottom of it all. And this stuff is out there, right? Like this is this is kind of the galaxy brain type thinking that, you know, at least I, I like to indulge in, but that we're really working on and paints a picture for how the world is going to be in the next five or 10 years, right? You know, what good is a phone anymore that isn't connected with the applications we all use every day? The purpose of our devices is to help us connect and interact with the wider world in these connected systems. And so 
and we're moving a lot of the smarts of how that works today on the internet all the way out to you so that, you know, not to go all the way back to cat pictures, but so that, you know, the smarts of how you're getting to those cat pictures, those applications or moving your data up to the cloud or whatever it is that you're doing from those devices is happening all the way at the device securely and reliably and fast. I think it's good to keep working on the cat picture callback. I think it's working well. Uh, <laughs> but I think the underpinning um, of it all. Absolutely. But going all the way onto the chipset, I think is fascinating because I, th- I mean, I remember back to there was one one of those one of the iPhones was, was it the four or the four S? I think in fact maybe it was the four, and they came out with the four S to solve the problem, but had a real problem with the network connectivity where you you couldn't move between say two zones within a net within a Wi-Fi network without it sort of failing completely. By what you're saying, we're getting into the chipset. It's probably almost down to that in terms of the routing, is it? Well, you know, I think that's such a great example because it takes it at this question or this trend from a very different angle, right? Like, imagine if you had a if you had a phone today, or you couldn't you couldn't actually be mobile because every time you move between towers, right, you'd have to reset the connectivity of thing. That's what I'd call you know very low level connectivity, and we've come to expect that that works, right? And now what's happening is we're, we're moving what I call up the stack on these phones, right? Like we're going to expect in five or 10 years that our phones or our sensors or our laptops or whatever are going to be smart in how they connect to the applications that make up our experience all day, every day, not just to the internet, right? Um, but the way we chat with people on Slack or download cat pictures or go to LinkedIn or watch movies on Netflix or whatever it is you know, smarts and intelligence and security and resiliency with respect to those things we do all day, every day is going to be built into our devices. Um, And that's what we're working on. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, from someone who does have a number of IoT devices in their house and also a mesh network and things like that, these things are great theories that are working theories at the moment. But for me, they don't ever work 100% of the time. So it makes sense that that would be the next direction, I guess. That's the goal. Yeah, that's the goal. That's right. Subject to the laws of physics, <laughs> which I have yet to figure out how to beat. So, <laughs> Well, it seems like we may be getting close. I mean, I, I, just to, to close up, I mean, I want to thank you for joining us on the show, uh, Chris. It's been brilliant. I mean, actually, we started the show mostly because we wanted to talk to, you know, the magicians behind the magic that is the internet and, you know, the world that we live in. And, uh, you know, the example that you gave of the the buffering earlier on in the talk you know, that, that was one of the main things that inspired me early in my career when I was working on prime video for Amazon was like, if you get that buffering wheel, um, people get angry and it is literally magic. That's exactly right. Chris. It's that, you know, this has been such a fun conversation guys, because I love to explore all the different angles between the technology trends and business implications. This is how the world is built, right? Um, it's just a fun, fun time to talk through this with you guys. Well, again, thank you for joining us. I mean, I, I love NS1. I'm a customer in a very, very small uh, fashion. Uh, <laughs> That's wonderful to hear. <laughs> it's great to have, uh, have had the chance to have met you and had you, had you here to talk to us. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's been a pleasure. So it seems that Chris deeply understands the problems that NS1 is trying to solve. Cat pictures. And it was a privilege to speak to him. <laughs> so next episode is Double Trouble from two founders of an intuitive gaming platform. See how I haven't mentioned who it is? 
Yes, you haven't. It's exciting. Suspense. Who is it? I'm not telling you. Oh, okay. You have to tune when do in. I find out? You, you never find out. Oh. You never will. I've been in the other, other dimensions. You'll never find out. Oh, I see. It's getting a bit stranger things here, isn't it? Right. <laughs> <laughs> All that's left to say is uh, drop us a shekel. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So leave us a review. We're getting some, uh, some reviews on, uh, on, on Apple Podcasts now, which is nice. So please head over there and do the same again. Thanks. Um, as many as you can. Yeah, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for saying that you like the show. Thank you for writing and saying you like the show. Uh, thank you for the likes on various platforms and things. So keep up with that nonsense uh, and head over to thattech.show for uh, all things thattech.show related. And we'll try and make that site a little bit exciting soon as well, I guess. And register interest in That Tech Show Live. Yeah, click on the obnoxious yellow banner. Do it. All right. See you next time.